I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and you shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. When his wrath is kindled but a little, blessed are all those who put their trust in him. So again, family, I pray, I hope that your trust is in the Lord. And again, with everything that's going on, uh, we had our prayer meeting before service on Wednesday nights at 6.30 to 7.45. Uh, 6.30 to 7.15, and man, it was packed. That was a blessing. We may need a bigger room already, so that's a joy. That's an honor. That's a privilege. On Sunday mornings, they'll be from 8 a.m. to 8.45 a.m., so if you're able to wake up a little earlier, the days the cafe's open, you could grab a quick coffee and get to prayer. And then on Sunday nights, again, a new format, worship, kiddos ministry. It was a blessing, I know, to those of us who were able to make it. Uh, ladies, ladies Bible study starting back up on January 12th. So if you're ninth grade and older, you're more than welcome to come as the ladies continue their study through the book of Psalms. And we'll be having our next water baptism Saturday, January 23rd at 8 a.m. at South Point Beach Park. Again, all of you are invited. It's always a great time of worship, a great time of fellowship, uh, but especially for the new believers or if you've rededicated your life to the Lord, an awesome day to get water baptized. I'm sure the water temperature will keep it in your memory for a long, uh, long time. Uh, but keep us in prayer. This Friday we'll be having a law enforcement appreciation luncheon. Uh, so every year it's a special uh, event, but this year, uh, as things get crazier and crazier, it seems like it's going to be a very special uh, engagement. And uh, a few years ago, myself, um, I think Jerry, George, Matt, Jose Casas, we went to the East Coast Pastors Conference. It's a conference that Calvary Chapel Philadelphia puts together, and uh, there was a message by a pastor by the name of Jack Kranz, and it blessed me a lot because it made me want to be a better pastor and it made me want to be a better father and I knew that he was in law enforcement and was in prison so this year Adrian's like man we need a guest speaker I was like ah I remember a guy so hey we're blessed tonight to have Pastor Jack Kranz here with us and you could give him a warm Miami welcome. It's an honor to be here tonight, and my dear wife is over here, and uh, she said, not pink on it, salmon. <laughs> I'm learning. We'd be married 50 years in May, can you believe it? I'm only 38. Now, we got married on May the 7th, 1971, so if you do the math, 1950, I mean, 50 years is coming up very fast, and so... I thank the Lord for a wife who's uh, been more than a partner with me. She's been, one time I think Pastor John MacArthur uh, spoke about God creating woman and, and just spoke to her about her as being man's completer. And I always like that too. And uh, Sue has certainly been a blessing to me and I know her better than anybody. And uh, believe me, she has been uh, an encouragement and she has been a, a lifeblood to our family. And we have three sons that uh, are all in ministry. We thank God for that. We have a 48-year-old son, Jonathan David, with four children. He's an evangelist in the world of skateboarding, kind of an X Games kind of guy, that uh, kind of artsy, but uh, he's our apologist in the family, believe it or not. And uh, I get to hear them arguing on my text while I'm down here about what's happening in Washington uh, from a biblical point of view. Uh, and our, our middle son, Timothy, is a pastor of the Wagontown Chapel, where we were married in 1971. And uh, Tim is... Uh, 30, uh, 42, and uh, he has four sons, and then we have uh, our youngest son, uh, Joshua, 38 years of age, and uh, when I see pastor up here, I'm not sure if you're that young or that old, but uh, when I see you, I think of my son Joshua in a loving way because I just think how much he needs encouraged and how much he needs his uh, life lifted up and, and just all the things he's seeing every day. Uh, Joshua is planning a church in our city, which is our high crime area. It's not a big city. It's kind of like a Ferguson. 
in Missouri, um, but it's a, it's a troubled little steel town in Pennsylvania called Coatesville. And um, right now, uh, every time something happens in this nation that involves police or involves a police shooting or the issues of justice and all those things that we've seen uh, in such a firestorm again and again and even today, um, Joshua finds himself just caught up in a world that he grew up in and that he understands. And yet, um, just to hear our sons back and forth, you know, on the Christian response. And, um, and so pray for us as a family. We, we're busy. We're not slowing down. I just turned 70 just a few weeks ago, and um, God's given me a lot of energy, and uh, we want to go until the Lord's finished with us. And, uh, and so maybe, maybe he'll give us another 20 years. You know, when I was invited to be here tonight, and I'm sorry if I'm real loud, so if you can turn me down, that would be great. But if, if it's okay with you, it's okay with me. I have a loud voice. And I really just want to speak from my heart tonight. I always like to do that anyway. I'll speak from God's word, obviously, um, but from my heart. Um, when you get one opportunity uh, to speak, definitely you always want invited back. You're not that stupid. Um, although, although I think a lot of places I preached, I never got invited back. So I, I must not do something right. Um, maybe I do speak from the heart. Um, I did ask what time I'm supposed to be done, and I look for a clock, and I see it, and it's 8.06, so that's good. You can be comforted on that. Um, but when I was invited to come here, it was not to be here tonight on this evening's service. It was to be here Friday at noon for the uh, police appreciation. And that's something that is very, very uh, close to me. Um, even though my primary work has not been law enforcement, it's been corrections, it's been prisons. And so really since a kid growing up in Coatesville, I grew up in a a public school. I grew up in a, a town that uh, was in the 60s and, and the time of the civil rights movement and grew up in schools that you walked to school when you lived in the city. And so uh, I had the privilege of uh, being moved into a town at the age of four that was much different than where I grew up. And at age uh, fourth grade, I found myself uh, in a place I just fell in love with. And matter of fact, here I am 70 years of age, and my son is now planning a church in that same, same uh, city. But it feeds our county jail about 35% of our men and women that are locked up in our jail. And so here I am at the age of 70, still in my home city, uh, have been a jail chaplain in my county since 1973. And so uh, my eyes have affected my heart, I can tell you that. And uh, Jeremiah prayed for that in, in Lamentations. Uh, chapter 3, he asked God to break his heart, make his eyes affect his heart. And um, as I said today on the radio broadcast, um, I asked a, a question that I would uh, rhetorically ask all of you tonight, uh, not just about today, but any time in your life. It's a good, fair question. What is it that breaks your heart? What is it that breaks your heart? And if you sit here tonight and say nothing, uh, that tells me a whole lot about who you are already. But everybody has something breaking their heart. I could ask that to an eight-year-old in my city. And if I help that little girl or that little boy, believe me, there's a lot breaking their heart. Uh, just this afternoon on the phone at our jail, I, uh, Adrian listened in on our jail conference call with staff today. And he knows in our jail today we have a prisoner who has lost another child while he's been incarcerated. And, um, and so he has to be told of a, a, a dead uh, child today uh, while he's doing prison time for the second time losing a child. Um, ask people what's on their heart, what breaks their heart. And I'll tell you what, that is a fair question uh, to the people of God. What is it that breaks your heart? And, and so tonight I want to pray and I just want to share this with you that I took the date to come here and speak on Friday knowing it was the... January the 8th, and when I was calculating in my head, knowing where this country is, at the time I was invited, I thought that's 12 days from what is planned to be the inauguration of the next president, January the 20th. I thought, man, what a time to speak to police in Miami than 12 days before the inauguration. And then, of course, the election happened, and everything's happened that's even happened today, I knew coming today and being here for tonight on January the 6th, I knew, and if you didn't, shame on you, I knew that somehow today was going to be another day that was going to be grievous uh, in this nation. I didn't know it would end up today where it has, but I can tell you, um, my heart has been broken a long, 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 long time. And, and 
It didn't take this week's events to make it that way. And it shouldn't have been that to make yours that way. Let's pray together. Father, tonight in this moment in history, this moment when much of the world will celebrate our division, the violence, the lawlessness which abounds in this nation. Lawlessness abounds, Lord. And so tonight I pray that you would just help us to hear what the Holy Spirit says to us. Thank you for the songs tonight, the worship, the focus of those songs, which called us to you, to love you intimately, to never let you go, that love. Oh God, I pray that even through pain, you draw us closer to you. And I pray tonight for every single life that's here that you would tender our hearts for the things that break yours. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Pastor, thank you for reading Psalm 2, and that's a great one to read. Certainly, I've been reading that psalm a lot. And then I was, Isaiah 2 is another great one, Isaiah chapter 2. You don't have to go there for time tonight, but Isaiah 2. I'm going to give you a lot of scripture tonight, so kind of take notes. I'm not going to preach a whole text to you, but take notes. Everything I want to say, I think, is timely for this day in America, okay? But Isaiah 2 is an interesting text as well because it's in there. In Isaiah 2, verse 4, it tells us, They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. And nation will not lift up sword against nation, neither will they learn war anymore. That verse from Isaiah chapter 2 is on the wall outside of the United Nations in New York. It's called the Isaiah Wall. It's down the block a little bit, but on the stairway coming down from what used to be a living area for a lot of the first representatives in the United Nations, that wall is called the Isaiah Wall. And there are those words about turning the um, swords into plowshares and pruning hooks, uh, again, swords into pruning hooks, and just basically instruments of war into instruments of peace, and that we'll learn war no more. And it was, almost became the theme, did it not, of the United Nations. It was the theme. We're going to put an end to war. The problem in the text is that they forget who it is that brings the end to that war. The text itself declares Christ again, just like Psalm 2. People miss out on the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, tonight, what I appreciate about your songs of worship and I appreciate about what you sang reminded me of two books that I want to recommend to you, lots of books I could recommend to you, but these are books I would say are musts if you really want to take time to fall in love with the Lord and really be serious. These two books have meant an awful lot to me. Pastor, forgive me if you don't agree. I'm not pushing the writer but I certainly like his commentary. Watchman Nee has written a lot of books, but one book he wrote that I really loved was his commentary on the Song of Songs. That's what it's called, the Song of Songs by Watchman Nee. It's nothing about anything but intimacy with Jesus Christ. Intimacy with Jesus Christ, Song of Songs by Watchman Nee. The second book that I would recommend to you, and this book is in my hands tonight, and this one here, again, it's probably like Nee's book, A Slow Read, and Deep. This is John Bunyan's last work, the writer of Pilgrim's Progress. John Bunyan, 1688. This manuscript was in his saddlebag when he died. It was published, they say it was probably one of the first books that was published by John Bunyan. This book I'll mention a little bit tonight. The theme of it is absolutely critical. It's been critical, and the theme of it, I'm going to say to you tonight, and maybe you disagree, but it is missing. It is missing in the church in America. It's missing in the church in America. And I'm saying this to every confessing church in America that literally claims the redeeming blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Psalm 107 verse 2 says, let the redeemed of the Lord finish it. Finish it. Hey, that's my wife. She said that. <laughs> I planted her out there tonight. You know, I have fun with that verse, Psalm 107 verse 2, because nobody knows how to finish it. Because everybody says, let the redeemed of the Lord, then I stop, and everybody says, say so. But they don't finish it. Because the end of verse 2 says, 
Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. This is important. Whom he has redeemed from the hand of the enemy. Now think about that. One of the reasons we aren't saying so might be we don't know how great a Savior we have. Now, I've worked in jail for 48 years. I can't say I've met everybody who's committed a crime in my county in those 48 years, but I've met most of them, one way or the other. Mom killers, dad killers, baby killers, sister killers, grandmom killers. You name the crime, we've met them. Men who've eaten their children, who've shook their babies to death on New Year's Day, beaten their babies with curtain rods on another holiday. I've met a whole lot of interesting people in my life. And I can tell you tonight, with all my heart, with all my heart, I have never met a man or woman in prison who's needed Jesus Christ more than me. And I never will. And if you know anything about the gospel of Jesus Christ and salvation by faith in Jesus Christ, I'm going to tell you tonight, not one of you have a chance of heaven apart from what Christ did for you on Calvary's cross. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from the hand of the enemy. What Bunyan writes about in this book, the acceptable sacrifice. If you gave it another title, which you'd actually see written in here, it would be the excellency of a broken, a rightly broken heart. The excellency of a rightly broken heart. The excellency of a rightly broken and contrite heart. The acceptable sacrifice. Based on Psalm 51, verse 17. A broken and contrite heart I will not despise. And he speaks about a Broken heart, a rightly broken heart. I was going to use this little sentence at the end of my message, but God's laid it on my heart to use at the beginning. As he defends his case on the importance of a rightly broken heart, he says this, This I will say because I would be understood aright that all attain not to the same degree of trouble, nor lie so long thereunder, as some of their brethren do. But to go to heaven without a broken heart or to be forgiven sin without a contrite spirit is no article of my belief. To go to heaven without a broken heart or to be forgiven sin without a contrite spirit is no article of my belief. Never ought we to take so great a salvation for granted. Several Christmases ago, when our nation was getting ready to make a decision about marriage in the Supreme Court, the decision that was going to be considered was whether or not a man married to a man and a woman married to a woman would be called legitimate marriage. We saw that coming. It was going to come to the court for a decision, and it was decided that year. But I remember for Christmas giving our sons just an inexpensive gift, but I gave them a little set of bells. And that little set of bells was a reminder to my sons going into that year to tell them we're living in a day when there are so many issues that are dividing the people of God. And all of these issues, believe me, that are dividing the people of God are being led by professing people of God. You are noticing that, are you not? That the craziest positions to the left are led by people professing a relationship with God. And it's the truth on the right. Why bells? For me, it's just a simple reminder 
If everything I said tonight you forget, maybe you won't forget an illustration of a bell. If I said the word bell tonight, in the scriptures, where would you find it appear? The word bell. Now, you may go back in your concordance and find me wrong, but I'm going to tell you, as far as I know tonight, it's located in two places. It's located once when you study the robe of the high priests as ordained by the law of God and around the robe of the high priest were bells between the pomegranates. As he would go into the high and holy place on the day of atonement, the sound of those bells, many believe, was indicative of the fact that the priest is still alive even though he's in the presence of a holy God. Matter of fact, on his, on his front of his hat is the word holiness unto the Lord. If we know anything about the law being given by God, it has everything to do with the holiness of God. When you talk about the basic laws of the Ten Commandments, we're talking about the holiness of God. When you read the Scriptures, the giving of the law, Exodus 32 to 34, as Moses is up in the mountain receiving the law, what do we see? We see thunder and lightning and fire and earthquake. We see scenes of a holy God meeting man. And man still being able to be in the presence of God, Moses. It still is beyond my thinking how, while Moses is receiving the law in the presence of a holy God, God's people are down in the valley knowingly committing idolatry. And I'm not exaggerating here tonight, folks. We're living in a time where we talk about the holiness of God and we live as if we're idolaters. What's wrong with the lawlessness in America? Holiness has disappeared. The theme of it. The thought of it. When I see a bell, it reminds me of the holiness of God. The only other place I know it exists is in the end of Zechariah, where in the kingdom age, it tells us that everything that's in our house is dedicated unto the Lord, Everything, the pots and pans, and on the, on the reins of the horses are bells. And those bells have engrafted in them the words, holiness unto the Lord. Now, Jack, what are you saying? I'm just saying, hey, buy yourself a set of bells as soon as you can. <laughs> and hang them up somewhere in your house, like those nice sleigh bells, and when you open the door and you hear them ring a little bit, Christmas Eve, the first little one running in my kitchen Christmas Eve for our Christmas Eve traditional family night. All 20 of our children and grandchildren coming in Christmas Eve. The first one in the door was Nadia Joy, maybe 11 years old, 13, Graham knows. <laughs> she came running in the door, and around her hands... The first thing I heard on Christmas Eve, years later, I'd given those bells to her dad a long time ago, several years. She comes running in the house with those bells around her fist on Christmas Eve, and the first thing out of her mouth was, Pa, God is holy. God is holy. It was the first sound I heard on Christmas Eve in my house from a 13-year-old granddaughter. Now, just pause a minute tonight. You say, Jack, that is insignificant to me. Is it? What you know is happening right now in this country, not just today. I'm talking about the laws that are being written. I'm talking about the media. I'm talking about the left and the right, the Republicans and the Democrats, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Whatever happened to the holiness of God? The reason we're losing the argument in the marketplace today must start with again reacquainting ourselves with a God who was there and has spoken and acted in space and in time. Dr. Francis Schaeffer wrote that book, did he not? He is there and he is not silent. 
And that was his basic premise. God is there, he is not silent, and he has acted and he has spoken in space and time. Just a few weeks ago on my talk with my leaders in my prison on my afternoon phone call, I asked my own staff two great questions. I can't really preach at them. It's a secular meeting, but I get a chance to end every day with them all since COVID and to pray with them, my top commanders. I asked them two questions. I said, number one, has God ever spoken in history? And has God ever acted in history? Just think about it. Your answer to that will tell me an awful lot about you and me. What has God said? Now think about what you've seen just today. I want you to turn in your Bibles, if you will, tonight to Micah chapter 6. And I hope I surprise you a little bit. Maybe I should say I hope I don't surprise you. Maybe you know what I'm going to say to you. Micah chapter 6. And when I say Micah chapter 6, you may already jump to a verse. Maybe you've already jumped there in your head, haven't you? I actually heard it quoted today, didn't I? On the radio, Micah 6, 8. Great verse, but I'm not taking you there tonight. I'll tell you why. I think the problem with Micah 6, 8 is raised before the 8th verse. The problem that we're all facing tonight, and, I, and I'm saying me too. And by the way, as I settle down up here tonight, I pray, I pray, I pray God is seeing my heart more and more and more rightly broken. When Bunyan talks about a broken heart, he uses an illustration. Let's just use Calvary here tonight. Now, I embellish it a little bit, but you'll see it if you get the book, The Acceptable Sacrifice. When I read this one paragraph, this is what I remember. I didn't go back and read it and read it, but this is what I remember. It gave me a word picture. I just pictured a, a mass of people, just to say it's you, and I'm a holy God. And you're just normal people, just like me, which means you have a heart that's against God. You have a tongue that that is full of poison, right? None righteous, no, not one. There is none that seeketh after God. There is, you know, none that doeth good. You know, right? Isn't that right? You believe that, don't you? And so here you are, a whole church, all of you, before you could say Psalm 107, verse 2, all of you were running away from God. You didn't think you were, but you were. And Bunyan takes a, makes a little bit of a picture illustration of God pulling back a bow. And I mean he's accurate. Ask Saul of Tarsus. He pulls back that bow. And he hits you. And everybody else storms over the cliff to hell. But not you. You fall down broken. Broken to the point where you are not going to get back up. And you turn and you look at who struck you. And then you let him do a work in your life. And you're not only broken, but you're contrite. And Bunyan will argue, that is the clean heart that David asked God for in Psalm 51. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Let me just finish this point before I go back to Micah. Since I brought up the name David, and I will bounce around a little bit, Pastor, because I'm only here tonight. So my wife says, honey, stay focused. I'm focused, honey, I promise you. My notes are right here. But I'm saying scripture I want you to think about tonight. Okay? I'm not going to preach it all to you, but I want you to think about it. I'm making a point, and they relate to each other. Remember I mentioned Israel, Exodus 32, 34? What did I say about it? Moses on the mountain with who? God, a holy God. Do they know God's a holy God? Do they know they're going to die if they come near that mountain? It's all there very clearly, black and white in red living colors. What are the people doing? Thank you, okay? 
Just want you to get that picture. We may be there in America right now. Oh, we know God's holy, but we sure ain't acting like it. Now, Bunyan, he bases this book on the great story of David. 2 Samuel 6, when they move the ark. Remember they move the ark? What happens? They move it against the way God wanted it moved. Well, who dies? Uzzah dies for what? Trying to straighten the ark. David gets mad at God, right? Gets mad at God. The ark sits again. David finally says to Nathan, his personal counsel and prophet, in 2 Samuel 7, he says to him, you know what, I got an idea. This is David. David, he says to Nathan, 2 Samuel 7, I got a good idea. You know, God's been dwelling in this tabernacle. I'm going to build him a house. I mean, I'm going to build him a right house. That's what David said. And Nathan said, go ask God about it. And God said, no, you're not. I'm going to build the house, and I am going to raise up my, my line through you, and I will bless the world through my king. But you're not going to do it, David. That's 2 Samuel 7. God prospers David with victories, and then before you know it, it's a time when kings kind of uh, go to war, and, and David decides to stay home, and he falls and gets his eyes on a woman named Bathsheba. Gets her impregnated, you know the story. Has her husband murdered. And then Nathan finally says, you are the man. Now just think about it. Here's a man, David, of all people. In one breath, he's saying, God deserves a great house. And I'm going to build it for him. And on the other, he's a murderer and an adulterer in the same paragraphs. Same scenario in a way. You got idols in the valley, and holy God meeting Moses on the mountain. You got a man in chapter 7 saying, I'm going to do these great things for God, and he's prostituting his whole life over here a few chapters later. By the time you get to Psalm 51, you read that great confession of David. He spends more time on the theme the necessity of a broken and contrite heart than he does just on expositing that passage, but he does build this whole book around Isaiah, Psalm 57, I'm sorry, 51, 17. A broken and contrite heart I will not despise. As a matter of fact, he says the Lord esteems it because God is the one who creates it. He creates the broken and contrite heart. Very important if you're here tonight and you say, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things are passed away. All things become new. One mark of a true follower and believer of Jesus Christ who has met him as Savior is someone who says, I am not worthy the least of his favor. But Jesus left heaven for me. He died on the cross and became my Savior and suffered on dark Calvary. It was for me he died. I'm the guilty sinner. Not those men and women I visited in prison. It's me that needed him. Yeah, they need him. But never lose sight of the fact that I need Christ. Now, you say, Jack, why would you go to the book of Micah? Look at Micah chapter 6, and I want to just begin in verse 1. And I think this is very, very important. And, and, and Joey and Adrian, when we were on the radio today, this verse came up, Micah 6, 8, and, and rightly so. It was very well spoken in the right context. I've got nothing against Micah 6, 8. Believe me. I'll read it because it's all on your mind. That's the verse you know from Micah, Micah 6, 8. He has shown thee, O man, what is good. What does the Lord require of thee but to do justly, love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. It's a great verse for these times, isn't it? Great verse. But I don't think it solves this, this nation's problems. Oh, we need to be, we need to be embracing the least and the lost. Read Proverbs 24, 11, and 12. If you see someone ready to perish 
and do nothing to deliver them, knowing that your own soul is kept by God, don't you know that you're going to give an account for that? Proverbs 24, 11 and 12. If you see someone ready to perish and do nothing to deliver them, knowing that your own soul is kept by God, don't you know that you'll have to give an account for that? Proverbs 24, 11 and 12. So there's nothing wrong with Micah 6, 8, but let's see what the setting of it is real quickly. Micah 6, verse 1. Hear now what the Lord says. Arise and contend before the mountains and let the hills hear thy voice. In other words, God says, you have an argument against me? Take it to all creation. Hear ye, O mountains, the Lord's controversy, and ye strong foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a controversy with his people, and he will contend with Israel. O my people, what have I done unto you? And in what have I wearied you? Testify against me. For I brought you up out of the land of Egypt, redeemed you out of the house of servants. I sent before thee Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O my people. Please don't miss this. Remember now what Balak, king of Moab, devised and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him from Shittim unto Gilgal, that ye may know the righteousness of the Lord. With what shall I come before thee, Lord, and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings and calves of a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or with 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul? And then, of course, we read verse 8. He's shown thee what he, he requires to do justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with thy God. But you know what happens? We miss the greatest point of all, which was made earlier when God says, hear and remember what Balak and of the king of Moab devised through Balaam and how God answered him so you understand the righteousness of the Lord. If I had time tonight, Pastor, and I knew I wouldn't from the beginning, nobody gets three hours to preach a Wednesday night prayer meeting. But I'll tell you what, it is worth your reading, and it doesn't take a Bible scholar to figure it out. You open your Bible tonight, Numbers chapter 22, 23, 24, and you read, and you will read this intriguing story that God says, remember Balak and Balaam, so that you may know the righteousness of the Lord. Now, remember earlier I talked about the bells, the holiness of God? Throw that into all the news clippings today, all the chaos that's out there today. I mean, almost everything today I'm hearing, I mean, I'm, even in the theological circles, I mean, there's so many great things going on on the web. You can go to this, this coalition and that coalition and go to all these meetings, and there's nothing wrong with that. But I'll tell you, we're living in a day where we're missing out, I think, on one of the most important things, and that is the holiness of God, the righteousness of God. And if we could just be awed by that, because you know what happens when you read that story of Balaam? You remember that story? What, what did King Balak want to do? He wanted to see a curse upon the people of God. And I'm telling you, folks, right now, you're living in a world, if you don't know it, you better get with the program. There is, a, there is going to be on the people of God a continual, a continual realm of persecution and hatred. And maybe it just got multiplied a thousand times today. But I can tell you this, there is an angst against the people of God. Balaam, Balak wanted them cursed. And Balaam, that hireling prophet, if you read it, I mean, it's a great story. You know the story. But basically, what happens is every time Balaam tries to do this for that king, what happens? God gives a huge blessing. 
He gives a blessing in unbelievable words. And, and what does Balaam do? Balak do? Or Balaam do? He goes out and sacrifices seven altars. He knows what God likes, right? He likes sacrifice, man. Let's go, let's give him a fireworks of, of blood offerings. And every time they would do that, God would reject the offering and would bless, bless with tremendous words and promises the people of Israel. Until finally, seeing Israel in a small part, a large part, and all of it, finally Israel almost had to declare with the prophet, look what God has done. In the old King James, see what God hath wrought, W-R-O-U-G-H-T. Look what God has done. What God wants to bless, he blesses. What he wants to curse, he curses. And you can bring no divination against the people of God. God says, I want to bless what I want to bless. And everything was great in that story until you get to the end. And then they were counseled to intermarry and to compromise themselves with Moab. And because of that, God brought a great plague upon Israel and brought great, great judgment against them until it was stayed by one of their most faithful men. Now you say, Jack, what's that have to do with today? Well, let me give you something to think about. I think it's interesting that when you read that story of Balaam, which God said to Israel in Micah, please remember Balaam. Why should you remember Balaam? What did it say in the text? What was the context? Why remember Balaam? So you might know the righteousness of God. Don't forget it. Don't forget God's mercy. Don't forget it, who it is that is blessing you, who is doing great works of mercy in you. One of my favorite verses, one of my favorite books in the Bible is the book of Habakkuk. But Habakkuk chapter 3 and verse 2 is something I quote all the time. Lord, revive your work. Habakkuk 3.2, revive your work in the midst of years. In the midst of years, revive. In your wrath, remember mercy. And I always put a parenthesis on it. And guess what I put inside that parenthesis? I'll quote it again. Lord, revive your work in the midst of years. In the midst of years, revive. In your wrath, remember mercy. Beginning with me. You think America needs a great awakening and a revival? Can I ask you tonight, do you? Do I? Am I really a broken and contrite man? Is my heart really broken for the things that break the heart of God tonight? You say, Jack, but why, why are you bringing up Balaam tonight? I'm going to give you something to think about. I'm bringing up Balaam tonight because Peter brings him up in his second letter to the scattered suffering church in the first century. I didn't do it. The Holy Spirit did it. It's in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 15. Who have forsaken the right way and are gone astray, following the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of righteousness, but was rebuked for his iniquity. The dumbass speaking with man's voice forbade the madness of the prophet. Just one example of apostasy and falling away in the last days. And who does God mention? Balaam. Let's go to the book of Jude. Another last day book. Verse 11, woe unto them, for they have gone in the way of Cain, ran greedily after the error of Balaam for reward, and perished in the gainsaying of Korah. They are spots in your love feasts. In other words, they're having communion with you. And God says, they're making me awful mad. But Jude mentions Balaam. 
John in his revelation, the second chapter, discussing the church at Pergamum. Verse 13, I know thy works where thou dwellest, even where Satan's throne is, that holdest the fast, holdest fast my name, and has not denied my faith, even in those days in which Antipas was mar- the faithful martyr and was slain among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you because you have there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit fornication. Maybe you think I'm crazy, but I'll tell you, a long time ago, this meant a lot to me when I read it in Micah. Because I'm one of the first guys to preach Micah 6.8. I will preach Micah 6.8 until the Lord takes me home. If people in my city don't see me loving them in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and they haven't been seeing me do that, then I have no right to talk about so great a Savior. The excellency of a heart rightly broken. You know, one thing missing today, I mean, no matter who you hear speak almost, what seems to be missing is this rightly broken heart. Well, we want it in the White House, and we want it in Congress. But do I have a rightly broken heart? When I speak to your police on Friday, my only confidence that God will prepare me for a 10-minute talk to them, believe me, Pastor, my only confidence, I have none, is in the fact that God will rightly break me to speak and that the words that I speak will come from a man who people will know has been broken before God. If you think about the message of salvation, God so loved you that it took the cross for him to convince you that you needed him. And that doesn't even move us anymore. We know he's holy. We know he's given his law. And yet we dance around a calf. I speak to all of us tonight. Every ethnicity, every race, every professing believer here tonight, every church in America tonight, if there's not a rightly broken heart and a heart that appreciates the grace and the mercy of God, because that's really the issue. That was God's issue with Isaiah. That's God's issue with Amos. That was God's issue with the people of God all down through history. The issue was God had blessed them and been good to them, and they forgot the very God who gave them the great mercy that they enjoyed. You're not going to fix America by just making everybody understand what the Constitution says. I mean, that's great, and I'm all for that. I'm not against that at all. But unless the Holy Spirit moves the heart of God's people to make it clear what it means when he had mercy on me, We live in a very, very, very critically dangerous hour. I'm going to stop here in just a second because of the time. So I'm going to jump ahead. But I want to give you just a a little illustration here tonight that, that maybe makes a point for me. My oldest son, Jonathan, he's known about the great missionary Jim Elliott for a long time. You know Jim Elliott, the, one of the five martyred missionaries to the, to the Wadanis or the Akas back in the late 50s. I was eight or nine years of age, six years of age when they were all killed on the beach there in, in South America. Spear to death. There was actually a great movie made. I hope you've seen it. Did you see it? The End of the Spear? Powerful movie. End of the Spear. If you think about it, that's how Jesus took care of my sin at the end of a spear. When I think about police officers, when they show up, a cop that knows what he's really doing shows up willing to take a spear, even though he carries one. 
willing to lay down their life. Jim Elliott laid down his life to an Aka spear. In that movie, remember that movie, The End of the Spear, that little boy, Steve, Stevie Saint? He's my age now. He's 70. But in that movie, they did a great job of portraying Stevie, that little boy whose daddy went up in that airplane and never came home. Remember that? Steve now, Steve, that little boy, is now 70 years of age, just like me. I haven't seen Steve Saint forever. A couple weeks ago on, on a post on my phone, somehow I saw a post, and here was a man, he's a paraplegic today. Do you know that? He's a paraplegic in a wheelchair. He's been serving the Lord in missions, had a head injury. He's now in a wheelchair, a paraplegic. I couldn't believe it was Steve Saint. There he is in his wheelchair, can't stand up. About 10 years ago, he buried a daughter. He's lived his whole life without a dad, lost him to, the, to that spear. And here he is in the wheelchair, and as Steve Saint is sitting in that wheelchair, with tears running down his cheeks, this man, Steve Saint, starts to quote a poem. And I thought, I've never heard this poem before. And matter of fact, many of you speak Spanish here. Most of you probably do. And I heard it called the mendicant, which someone told me in Spanish means the beggar. Is that correct? Mendicant? Something like that? Mendingo? Okay. The poem is called The Mendicant. Someone else called it The Thorn. But Steve Saint, with tears rolling down his cheek, remember now, he lost a dad at age five to a native spear. He just buried a daughter 10 years earlier. Here he is a paraplegic sitting in a wheelchair, and this is the poem that he reads. I think it's a beautiful picture of what Paul even talked about, that when, when he suffers, he finds himself stronger. You sang about it tonight, about the pain and how it draws us nearer to the Lord. Listen to this poem. I want to close with this tonight. It kind of touches a little bit on this issue of a broken and contrite heart, particularly coming from Steve Saint. I stood a mendicant of God before his royal throne. I begged him for one priceless gift which I could call my own. I took the gift from out of his hand, but as I would depart, I cried, but Lord, this is a thorn, and it has pierced my heart. This is a strange and hurtful gift which you have given to me. He said, my child, I give good gifts. I gave my best to thee. I took it home, and though at first the cruel thorn hurt sore, as long years passed, I learned at last to love it more and more. I learned he never gives a thorn without this added grace. He takes the thorn to pin aside the veil which hides his face. I said, man, Steve Saint, you're telling me that it took this act in your life to finally even say, this alone has pulled back a veil to help me see the Lord more than I've ever seen him before. You know what's happening in this country right now? What's happening maybe in your life tonight personally? Maybe there's things happening tonight that ought to really bring us to a point where we say, Lord, if ever we wanted to see your glory and your holiness, it is now. We should have been seeing that a long time ago. Israel forgot it. David forgot it. The first century church was forgetting it, according to Pergamum and Jude and 2 Peter. And here we are tonight. I wonder if God's going to do anything great, I believe the greatest thing he could ever do is teach me what it means to have a broken, rightly broken and contrite heart. Somehow it is the greatest thing we can offer to him. Let's pray. Lord, we can watch any news channel tonight and get disturbed and get angry.
You remind me right now, Lord, of a conversation I had with a former deputy of Los Angeles who recently said to me, in the day of lawlessness, according to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, as the world becomes more and more lawless, there's only one thing that hinders. And until it's taken away, it will continue to hinder. And Lord, I pray that we may be a force in this world that still hinders the evil one. I pray, Lord, that we will have hearts that are rightly broken, that we will come before your throne appreciating the great grace of Calvary in our own lives. It will not be like Israel that danced around an altar when we knew you were holy. It will not be like David that early in his life said, I'm going to do this great thing for God with a heart full of sin. Or be like Israel, so blessed of God that the day finally came when they forgot it and felt his judgment. Lord, tonight, if you would tarry and with mercy still break our hearts rightly, do it, I ask, individually and corporately, for Christ's sake. Amen.